Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist science correspondent, and I've been at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Washington, D.C., This is the largest general science meeting in the world, the only one that features talks on the latest work in astrophysics to biology, geology to sociology. Later on in the show, why astronauts on their way to Mars will probably need a good sense of humour. A professor at the University of Florida finds that having a clown, a person who plays the role of a clown on the team, is really important in that particular context. And can machines become scientists? The machine learner chose what experiments to do, essentially randomly, by just trying to find some trends and then use those trends in order to choose the next experiment. First, how does a year in space change a person? How does the body adapt to being in an environment where there's little or no gravity and where radiation levels are higher than here on Earth? At the AAAS meeting in Washington, NASA scientists revealed the results from their twins study. This examined the molecular and physiological changes in astronaut Scott Kelly during his year-long stay in space and compared those changes to his twin brother and also an astronaut, Mark Kelly, who stayed on Earth. The findings will help shed light on how to keep humans safe during trips to Mars, which could last up to three years on a round trip. One of the scientists involved was Christopher Mason, Professor of Computational Genomics and Genetics at Weill Cornell University. He told me more about the study. So we wanted to measure everything we possibly could. So the, the, the simplest thing is to see is, well, what changes when the body's in space for that long? Is it different from six months? And are there things that we can use for future missions? So one of the first things we saw is that the gene expression levels uh, from, from the work in my... I'm one of 10 teams on the study, so there's a large group working on this. My lab was one of them, and we actually saw gene expression changes. Thousands of genes change when you go in, into space, almost like fireworks in space inside the blood of a rapid adaptation and change. And we saw more genes changing expression later in the mission, like in the last half of the year, which indicates that there's you know, even more of an ongoing adaptation to spaceflight, a gene expression level. What kinds of functions in the body are changing? We observed really striking changes in immune system-related genes. So this includes a regulation of natural killer cells, or what are called monocytes, basically cells that control how the immune system is adapting, and they were all very upregulated. We also observed a really big spike in what's called mitochondrial DNA in the blood. So this indicates that there's a, you know, another indicator well, of cell stress. That's basically the body's kind of thinking, uh, what's happening? I need to try and adapt and put the immune system on high alert is really what we observed uh, pretty consistently feature of Scott in space. And the immune system, of course, adapts to all sorts of threats on Earth. Um, So you'd expect it to be something that changes up in space too. What does it tell you about what space does to the body, though? 
Yeah, so this, this really shows us that the, the immune system didn't just change like you would if you got a cold on Earth or if you, say, you know, went and go swam in a, a dirty pond or something. This seemed to be a much more dramatic change, much, much more, many more changes and of a larger degree. And also the proportions of cells that we observe, the, the, the number of natural killer cells uh, decreased after flight. So this also means that the cells that are there are not only changing, but the number of them is changing as well. So that, and particularly the natural killer cells decreased after flight, which was a surprising feature. What do the natural killer cells normally do? Uh, I mean, I, I could guess by the name. Right, right, right. right. They're, well, they're mostly scavenging other dead cells and other bacteria, viruses around your body. And so they, uh, a lack of them, you know, is not necessarily good or bad. We just know that they've gone down. And so so we uh, really are looking now for future missions. Do we see this consistently? Is this something unique to Scott? Is this, um, you know, did he get more sick or less sick now that he's been back on Earth for a couple of years? So that's what we're monitoring now is did it really have a downstream and long-term impact? We just don't know yet, but we can see for sure that the cell types change and the genes change their expression. So the immune system, what else changed uh, noticeably? So we also said DNA repair genes were really activated, which is not surprising. He's being irradiated above the uh, planet. When your DNA breaks, you have to repair that, or when you get small single letter changes in the genetic code, it has to constantly be repaired. Also, while you're on Earth, this is happening in all of our cells to all of us every day. In this case, we could see this was more upregulated, though, in space flight. So this seems to be the body adapting to that radiation impact on the ISS. And that's that's a good response, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. If you're getting damage, you should hopefully be repairing it. Yeah. So that also is kind of good news as well. Was there anything surprising? Well, and some things I'll be talking about a bit today is we also observed, you know, some genes for things that were more surprising. Like uh, we looked at some genes for what's called hypoxia, where you actually look like you might have, you know, low oxygen. But then we looked at the oxygen levels on the space station and they were fine. So we think it's not necessarily the lack of oxygen. It's just the body, again, trying to adapt to the really alien environment to discern what's happening. And so we see genes that, you know, are indicated of other stressors but are showing up uh, not because of that stress. So it was really interesting. So a huge number of interesting results from the twins but obviously to have a a human space program that goes all the way to Mars you're going to need loads more data where do you start to get and build that data set from? Yeah, we're uh, beginning with more with astronauts. You know, so there's going to be another, uh, basically about 30 more astronauts in the next seven years. That'll be monitored for at least six months or a year, uh, some potentially longer. And we're also going to be doing more ground-based studies, so looking at people just long-term on Earth as they endure stress. And the third area is we're looking at what's called Gene Lab, which is a repository of mouse data, human cell lines, other data sets that we can look at to see sort of a conserved mammalian response to spaceflight. So if you were to zoom out and think about a mission to Mars with five astronauts, in, in know, 10 or 20 years' time. Are you optimistic that um, you'll know enough to keep them safe and healthy? Yeah, I'm optimistic for two reasons. One is that the vast majority of changes we observed seem to show a really strong resilience of the human body as an adaptive organism to spaceflight. Uh, and the second thing is we now have a good map of what are the things we want to look for and trace and potentially help the body defend against, or, you know, and, and see if it's anything we can help the body with. So building these first maps, even if it's only with a handful of astronauts to start, helps us see what's normal, what's something that changes a lot, and things that then we can target for pharmacological agents or other ways to help the body. So nothing that blows um, long-term space travel out of the water yet? Not yet, yeah. I think so far it's good news. Chris, thank you very much. When Scott Kelly got back from space, he said that teamwork makes the dream work in spaceflight. The first crewed spaceflight will have many social as well as biological challenges. NASA engineers are already thinking about how to put together the right kinds of teams that can get along, carry out their tasks and succeed all in a confined spaceship in the most extreme conditions for years on end. It turns out that a good sense of humour is definitely required.
Noshir Contractor, Professor of Behavioural Sciences at Northwestern University in Illinois, brought together sociologists, anthropologists and psychologists at the AAAS to highlight the latest research in team building in space. For decades, we have been doing research on trying to understand how humans will deal with the hazards of space, radiation, gravity, uh, isolation, extreme environments. But it's only within the last decade that as space travel begins to look at long-distance space exploration, where it's not just a, a matter of a 72-hour trip or a, a week-long trip, but as we begin to think about going to Mars, nine months to go to Mars, a year before you can even swing back to Earth in the right place, you need to figure out how six people, perhaps from different cultures, are going to be cooped up in a small little environment with no exit strategy, no voluntary exit strategy, and are going to try to figure out how they can not just cope with each other, but work well together. So how does this compare to the 1960s when people were racing to get to the moon, Tom Wolfe writes about the right stuff, astronauts are still selected along those sorts of criteria. Yes, yes. I mean, are you saying that the right stuff is not quite right anymore? Indeed. In fact, Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff referred to people in the Mercury uh, missions and people like John Glenn and Alan Shepard. And if you look at the kind of work that was done then, what The Right Stuff was basically about people who were incredibly rugged, who were incredibly bold, daring, often very self-centered in a self-interest and perhaps good way. That's not going to be the right stuff today. Today, that's the wrong stuff. And what we are trying to do is find the right stuff for interplanetary teams, not just going on, a, on you know, as being shot out of a rocket, which is really what the Mercury missions were all about. Uh, and so the, what we are learning from our modeling and our computer modeling of the crews that we are studying here on Earth in what I call is a human petri dish, the human exploration research analog facility at the NASA Johnson Space Center, is we put people in there from 30 to 45 days at a time and poke and prod them physiologically, psychologically to understand the dynamics. And one of the things we are learning are there certain personality characteristics that are really crucial in helping understand how well they work with the team. Our colleague Jeff Johnson finds that certain roles are really important. Teams that he has studied in Antarctica, where they also spend a lot of time in isolated, uh, confined and extreme environments, Jeff Johnson, a professor at the University of Florida, finds that having a clown, a person who plays the role of a clown on the team, is really important in that particular context. And so one of the things that we're doing is identifying what are the key personality characteristics that individuals have and what are the key personality compatibility characteristics that two people might have. So we, not surprisingly, we find that a person who is an introvert might actually get along better with a person who's an extrovert, while two extroverts might get involved in some kind of an alpha male contest in those situations. We find that people who are conscientious might be very important being someone that the team should rely on in high-performance missions, though sometimes they are seen as hindrances or as nags in these contexts. So there's a whole new set of ingredients that we need to put together to build a manual for the right stuff today as compared to what Tom Wolfe wrote about. Now, if you've got all this data, you build the team as effectively as you can, you try and predict all of the problems. Obviously, you won't be able to predict everything. And this crew, six months down the road, on its way to Mars, starts to have trouble. How can you, anyone on Earth or even 
are there software programs you can write to help them deal with that in the moment? That's a very good question. So let me parse it two ways. Even if we do predict something bad is going to happen, we still have to deal with it. And in fact, a lot of the work that we are doing right now at the NASA Johnson Space Center is a research project where we have a crew that is going into HERA, and our goal here is to see, we built a model to predict and saw that there are actually two people on this crew who we predict will not get along well by day 15. And so part of what we are doing in this particular context is anticipating that they're going to have a problem and changing the task activities that they're going to do with each other and with other people in order to see if that will help. Our models tell us that if you give them different activities or you give them a cooling off period where they don't have to work for a period of time or you give them a task that they both are really good at so they will enjoy doing it and from that will build a better bond or give them an opportunity to work with someone who they both like who will help bond them, that that would be a way of what NASA calls mitigating against certain uh, tragedies from occurring. So the idea of being able to anticipate and then be able to preempt is a very important part of what you're doing. But there was something else he said that was really important, and that is, why is it that only we want to remotely help them? As we get into these autonomous missions and people get closer to Mars, there's going to be situations where it's going to take 21 minutes for an interaction from Mars back to Earth and vice versa. In those cases, they need to operate autonomously. And so on the books, in the plans, can we create dashboards that they themselves can use to anticipate what is happening and to find strategies to deal with it rather than rely on mission control to help with that. So like a machine learning counsellor? Well, I I think uh, that would be a modest statement because I'm not sure that we are at the point where where the machine learning is going to replace it. I'd be more comfortable referring to it as some kind of augmented counsellor to go along with uh, humans involved, to have a human in the loop. No sheer contractor. Could you last nearly three years in space? Are you the joker that's required? Contact Mission Control at radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, machines are learning how to play games such as Go. They can drive cars and analyse complex data in new ways. But could a machine ever carry out an actual science experiment by itself? Could a machine become a scientist? And if it could, would it do a better job than a human scientist? I spoke to Artie Singh and Bob Murphy, professors of machine learning at Carnegie Mellon University. If I can put it this way, why is the way we do science inefficient? Because it's primarily guided right now by human intuition. Some of which is important, but some of which can also be prone to biases and errors and limitations in terms of the spaces that humans can navigate. We can't solve very complex problems, and that is a limitation in terms of how well we are able to push the frontier of science. And so how does that affect uh, scientific work? We've had several hundred years of scientific research that's been directed by humans. It still is right now. We're doing okay. It's pretty slow, though, right? You would agree that in terms of, you know, the number of things that we have been able to cure, we can speed it up significantly if we are able to leverage both the human knowledge, but also and the prior literature, but also what uh, data is telling us. And that is something where machine learning can come in and help with the design of collecting more data, collecting more informed data and collecting it at a faster pace. So describe for me what machine learning does in science right now and how, what your proposal for it could be. 
right now, machine learning is primarily being used as a tool for data analysis, which is taking in the data that scientists are producing and uh, coming up with some predictions or associations in the data based off the algorithm output. But what machine learning can also do is it can come in in many other places in the scientific discovery process, not just as a data analysis tool, but as a tool that can guide the data collection. For example, what experiments should be done, what simulations should be done, when should experts be engaged, and to what extent, and how can we integrate all of these information together. So at the moment, of course, machine learning is used by scientists to go through huge amounts of data, but it's the scientists deciding which experiments to run, how to interpret those things. And you're suggesting that the machine learning could take some of that load. Yes, exactly. So uh, it can free up the human to do the more higher level task of, you know, asking the right scientific questions. But then the machines can actually take over the role of guiding the experiments and the simulations and uh, then uh, taking the output in a a manner that the humans can consume easily and then giving it to the expert to decide what the next set of exper- what the next set of scientific questions should be. And Dr. Murphy, so in your talk you um, discussed drug development. Just give me a sense uh, of how complex drug development is right now and where does machine learning usefully help? One of the biggest problems in drug development right now is that the space of possible effects that drugs could have on people is very, very large. There are many possible drugs. There are many, many possible effects they could have. Every individual has a different genome. And so the space of exploration of what drugs might work properly for a particular individual for a particular disease is very hard to navigate. And and that's where the type of active machine learning that we were talking about today comes in. Can you give me uh, like a worked example of how active machine learning, as you're calling it, can actually help you to find new drugs, new targets, etc.? So we've done some experiments that treat the problem of developing drugs a little bit like the game of Battleship that you have a a matrix of many possible drugs and many possible effects, and what you're looking for is drugs that have a particular effect on one target without having effects on other targets. So no side effects, essentially. No side effects. And in order to do that, you need to build a predictive model for that whole space because you can't do all of the experiments. So what we we did is we showed that an, an existing database of drug effects on various targets that we could play a game of Battleship with that data and show that we could have found 60% of the hits in that data with doing only 3% of the experiment. That was a database of known targets, known effects, which you took and sort of hid, hid away and asked the algorithm to find and then you looked at how good it was at finding those things. Exactly. But obviously we haven't got a database of all the possible drugs. So how do you move it forward? How do you get these algorithms to look for in this space of possibilities that we don't know anything about? Well, so we actually tackled that by doing a prospective experiment where we used robotic equipment, robotic liquid handlers and an automated microscope and set a problem for the system to learn the effects of a set of drugs on a set of targets where nothing was known about either of them prior to that. And then the active learner, the machine learner, chose what experiments to do, essentially randomly by just trying to to find some trends and then use those trends in order to choose the next experiments. And there again, we were able to show that we could find a model that was 92% accurate while doing only 28% of the the possible experiments. And, And these experiments are robots taking specific drug molecules and putting them onto assays in a dish, essentially. Dr. Singh, can I ask you, with all of these examples, which sound really quite exciting, what's left for humans to do? 
I mean, we all worry that computers and robots are going to take our jobs. Should scientists start worrying about that? Uh, so I think all we are talking about is there are certain tasks that humans are good at and there are certain tasks that machines are good at. So we are just talking about replacing the tasks that humans are not so good at or are sort of now mundane for them because they are well established. Those can be taken over by machines. But the humans are now relieved of that task and they can actually focus on more of the scientific questions or their scientific curiosity. And I think that's really the component that humans bring uh, to this process, which is indispensable. But machines can take over some of it. So you're releasing scientists from the drudgery of some of this lab work. It's, it's not just that, though. I think that one of the questions is, what are the things that humans are good at and what are the things that machines are good at? And the history of the last 20, 30 years indicates that there are many things that people thought they were good at that machines were actually a lot better at. But such the, as? Uh, well, you know, such as analyzing images, to, you know, measuring similarity between images and that now computer systems do much better than, than people do. But the essential role of the human is always going to be the same as it is with a, in a self-driving car. In a self-driving car, you don't do the driving, you don't know, figure out how to get wherever you're going, but you decide where you want to go. That's the essential role that, that a human scientist is always going to have in automated science, self-driving instruments as we call them, is deciding where we want to go. Now, the other very, very important role for scientists is to develop new measurement technologies and new automated instruments that would enable us to learn even more than we would have been able to before. So can you both predict for me when an algorithm will win the first Nobel Prize? <laughs> that remains to be tested. <laughs> I'm not sure it's in the committee's description, but... 2040. 2040. Okay, we'll come back and check then. Thank you both very much indeed. Arty Singh and Bob Murphy. Well, I suppose the next step might be machine podcast presenters too. Hmm. And that's all from Babbage this week and from me at the AAAS in Washington, D.C. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist too? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Alok Jha in Washington, D.C. This is The Economist. 